0: Well, I'm excited to introduce our guest speaker for today, who's going to close out Missions Month for us. Pastor Mitch Fierro serves on staff as pastor of Care Ministries at Fullerton Free Church, and that's just down the freeway from us, maybe five, ten minutes from where we are. And he serves there, and he leads the local and global mission of Fullerton Free Church. And prior to his ministry there, he served for a number of years at Fullerton. Uh, Rock Harbor Church down in Costa Mesa. And that's where he was commissioned to plant a church back in 2012. Mitch is married. He and his wife, Anna, have four beautiful children. You see up here, they have one busy household. And I'm so thankful because Mitch and Anna both have a heart, a deep heart for evangelism, for discipleship, and for church growth. And uh, I've gotten to know Mitch over the last handful of years because we see each other every couple months because our churches are involved in the same cluster of EFCA churches here in the area. And so our churches get together, we fellowship, we encourage one another, and I've really gotten to know Mitch and his heart for the gospel. And so I'm just so thankful that he's here to minister to us. Um, In addition to his four kids, he has two dogs, for all you dog lovers, and he and his wife are proud owners of two minivans that's exciting but we are so thrilled that he's going to wrap up missions month for us and so would you join me in giving a very warm e-free welcome to pastor mitch fierro
1: i hope those laughs for the minivan were laughs of awesomeness because it's awesome to own two minivans uh, especially when you have as many kids as we do, you, know, you just push a button and they get in and out. And it's just one less thing that we have to worry about, um, getting them in and out of cars. Uh, yeah, so again, thank you so much for being here. Uh, or no, wait, thank you for having me here. There we go. Thank you so much for having me here. Uh, I, I'm, I consider it a great privilege to to be the one that, that kind of wraps up this this Mission Gospel Essentials series that, that you've been Um, You've kind of been working through over the last month and um, I've I've been kind of following along in preparation for my time here and kind of just observing and listening to what what God has brought to this church through the various speakers that have come prior to me. And so what what I hope I get to do today is to maybe help you give you a little bit of a maybe a what's next or even how do I take these things that, that have been talked about these last few months and put them into practice. Right, like, What does the mission field actually even look like today when, when we leave this place, when we enter back into our circles, our relationships our, with our coworkers, friends, family members, loved ones? Um, because it might not be the way you think it is. It might, it might look a little different than the way it's looked historically. And so what I want to do is just help you see a, a broader picture of what's actually happening, um, not just within the church, but within the world around us. As I'm I'm getting older, um, as my kids constantly remind me, um, I'm learning how important it is to actually see clearly. Uh, When I get home from work, uh, my, my two youngest, which are four and six... Uh, they'll, they'll run up to me and they, they want to show me the drawings that they made. My kids are in that, that phase of life where there's just journals and crayons and markers all over the place. Uh, and so the moment I get home, my daughter wants to show me everything that she's drawn. And my, my son wants to show me everything that he's watched my daughter draw, that he's attempted to draw the exact same thing. Uh, and so what they do is I walk in the door, I put my bag down, and I sit down on the couch and I ask them how their day was. And they immediately like, thrust their drawings in my face in which I see nothing. And I have to, like, push it back a little bit. And I go, oh, yes, you drew me again with no <laughs> hair. Um, and I, I, I'm just learning how important it is for me to be able to have the right lenses to be able to see what's in front of me. See, without these lenses, um, I, this, this, even this is really hard for me to see. I've, I've gotten to the age where I need corrective lenses to see clearly. But then it got me thinking about just the other types of lenses that, that I wear. Um, I like... Pastor Tim, I'm, I'm an avid runner. And so when I, when I run, because I have sensitive eyes, I have to wear these particular sunglasses. Now, I won't put them on because I think they look incredibly goofy. And so if you ever see me running in Fullerton, do not laugh at me. Uh, but they do what they're supposed to because they're big, they're broad, they, they, they block the light coming in from the sides, they block the light that bounces up from the asphalt, they block the light that comes in um, from, from the top. Because if I, my eyes aren't protected, I have incredibly sensitive eyes, I'll get, I'll get migraines if I spend too much time outside under the sun's uh, uv rays Uh, and i also have these lenses where if i know um, if i'm going to be under fluorescent lights for an extended period of time or if i'm going to be working at on my computer for an extended period of time i have these blue light glasses which again defend my sensitive eyes to the harmful blue lights that prevent me from getting a migraine that could potentially lay me out for a day two days i mean my worst migraine i think i was even out for for a month it was it was horrific But these lenses, they help me see and they help me discern with clarity what I'm actually looking at. They help me truly understand the environment that I'm a part of, that I'm participating in, and in many ways, uh, they bring into clarity what would be distorted without them. So for the rest of our time this morning, uh, I'm going to be talking about what does it look like for us to be wearing the right lenses for the world that we're engaging in today. So you're going to hear me talk about missions a lot. And I think oftentimes uh, because of church history and maybe the, the church's emphasis on global missions for the last 100 or so plus years, when you hear the term mission, you might immediately think overseas mission. But when I talk about missions for the sake of this morning and maybe even for the, for, for the rest of your lives, that when you think about mission, specifically God's mission for the nations, yes, it includes the countries outside of the United States. It includes unreached people groups. It includes people that don't look like us. But really, the mission of God is God's redemptive work for all of creation to redeem it back to relationship to himself. And that does take place overseas, as you'll probably hear later as you interact with some of your missionaries here. But it also takes place with your barista when you order that cortado every morning on your way to work. Or it includes the, the, the person that bags your groceries or asks you all the right questions at Trader Joe's when you're checking out. Maybe it includes that, that coworker that maybe you have a hard time working with, or that family member, or that neighbor that you just start beginning to start up, strike up a relationship with. This is the mission that God has called and empowered all of us by his Holy Spirit to participate in. And so, yes, it does look like overseas, but it also looks like your very circles that you engage in every day. So to have a clear understanding of what the mission field looks like today, I think it's helpful to even understand what the state of the church is today. And so you, there might be some, some number data geeks in the room. Maybe you've heard some of these statistics already. Um, but I'm just going to ask you to kind of just listen and don't be discouraged. Because I think it's easy to hear these numbers and immediately think, well, then what's the point? Or we've really dropped the ball. But listen to this and to think with possibility, maybe. How God can be stirring you and wiring you and even calling this church to participate in his, his mission. So the state of the church. Uh, many of you guys might have heard this number before, but prior to COVID-19, the average American attended church. Does anybody know? Twice a month. Post-COVID-19, the average Christian now attends church once a month. Why is that? I don't know. I mean, it had probably it could have a lot to do with just uh, the atrophy that, that we might have felt from being home for so long, or might have had to do with just the, uh, the, the ease of, of doing church at home, right? We live in a, a point in time where you can literally curate your church experience or your religious, I don't want to say church, your religious experience, right? Like, you can find whatever celebrity pastor that you love following on Instagram or TikTok. You love their, their little 30 second sound bites. And you can now listen to them on Sunday morning via your smart TV. And you can listen to all your favorite worship songs on your curated Spotify Christian music playlist. Uh, and there's really no need, maybe in, in some people's mind, to be a part of the physical community. Uh, for, some of people, for some people who have been going to church historically, maybe that, that, that time that we had where we were at home and not knowing what to do and what, it, what next was going to look like, maybe that was just the excuse to stop going in the first place because they never really liked going anyways. So now there's just, there's no, that, that, that guilt that they maybe would have experienced. COVID got rid of all that guilt and now they don't even need to show up anymore. These are all hypothetical situations. Of course I'm not talking about anybody in the room. Um <laughs> Or, or it could just be the, just a lack of, of value for the gathered church. Just, uh, 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 maybe there's just, uh, not a value to do what you guys did when, right before I came up, right? To, to look across the aisle and, and to shake someone's hand, to look into their eyes and say hello. Maybe there's just not a value for that anymore. But for whatever it is, people only attend church once a month now. Discipleship looks incredibly different as well. Uh, According to Pew Research, um, the amount of professing Christians is down to 65%. That means the amount of people in the United States uh, at the time of this survey that that selected uh, Christian as their religion is down to 65%. Whereas if you were to go back in time 50 years, that number was 85% plus. That means 85% of Americans and more considered their religion to be Christianity. That's now down to 65%, down 12 points from 2009. Um, there is an increase though in Americans selecting none as zero religious affiliation. And that number had gone up from 17% to 26% in the last 10 years. That means more people are choosing to identify with no religion than the religion of Christianity. Um, and of those, so that, that 65 remaining percent, right, the, the, the remnants of the American church, the 65% of those 65%, when more research was done, um, they, they, get, they got a sample of that amount, and they asked questions in regards to uh, what we would consider baseline discipleship, right? Um, attending church more than twice a month, um, participating and serving, volunteering within your faith community, um, giving regularly. Spending time in the Bible, actively praying, and feeling a need, and actually sharing your faith. So of those six markers of of being a a Christian or being a follower of Jesus, the baseline markers of discipleship, of those identifiers, only 4% of that 65% said they actively participate in all six of those markers. 4%. Of of America actually participates in those baseline markers of being Christian, and this would make sense. Why our country, um, our religious values, our, our our values and morals as as Christians are just no longer relevant. The church is no longer the moral majority in this country. Biblical literacy is at is at an all time low meaning that there was a time in history when there was just enough Bible exposure that a, a biblical reference could be mentioned in public. And for the most part, people understood and knew what they were talking about. And the way that I love to illustrate this is John 3.16, right? You guys remember the, the, the clown guy that would hold up the sign at major sporting events and it said 3.16? Uh, people would look at him and they would look at that sign and they would know what he was talking about. There was a general understanding that 316 meant, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. You guys know the rest of that. There was a time when people saw that sign and they knew what it meant. Fast forward to where we are today in the 21st century. Uh, I have two friends that that own a clothing label called 316. Uh, They've been featured in men's fashion magazines. They they run what is to be considered one of the best American denim manufacturing um, companies or brands in the United States. Uh, they get two questions most in in, in their inbox. The first is, one, how do we take care of these genes that we bought from you? But the second question is, what does 316 mean? Meaning that what was once an assumed understanding um, just does not exist within culture today. Now, again, I'm not trying to discourage us, but I'm just trying to paint a picture of where we are, what the mission field actually looks like today. Now, let's, let's kind of take a step back and look at, at globally where, where we find ourselves. A uh, hundred years ago, a majority of Christians, or excuse me, a majority of the global church was found in the West. And so when I say the West, I mean uh, North America, Western Europe, Australia. Um, 70% of the church lived in those parts of the world. Today, it's flipped. of the global church is now found in developing nations, and only 30% of the church is found in the West. So that means the majority of the church is in countries like China and parts of Eastern Europe, um, large parts of South America, Northern Africa. And I say that one just to paint a reality for what the church looks like today. And so one might hear those numbers and be discouraged that the majority is no longer in the West. But really, I want you to be encouraged by that because all those years ago when all those churches got together and said, actually, look, with airplanes and trains, we can actually reach the nations for the gospel. It's worked, guys. Like, we've actually reached the nations for the gospel. we've, we've We've taken the good news of Jesus Christ to the nations. So much so, yeah, yeah, we could celebrate... Not what we have done, but what God has done through his church. Amen? So, because there are more Christians in the rest of the world, in developing parts of the world, there are just some facts and some realities that come with that. It means that there are less missionaries now coming out of the West. There are, there are less short-term, long-term missionaries from the Americas, from, East, from Western Europe, being sent out into the mission field. But that also means that these countries that were once developing countries, or still are developing countries, are sending more missionaries into the field. And we're actually beginning to see a, this, this interesting thing happen, that, that the recipients of the gospel in these developing nations, that they no longer view themselves as just recipients of the gospel. Right, People that the Western church needed to reach, needed to fix, needed to make right, but really they're finding their place in God's redemptive story. And the very thing that catalyzed the West to go to them, the Holy Spirit's beginning to catalyze in them, and that they're now believing and seeing their part in the Great Commission and saying yes to Jesus' stirring and calling in their lives and going back out into the nations that maybe even sent missionaries to them at some point in time. That means that these developing nations are now the primary senders of missionaries into the rest of the world. And that means that because there's less missionaries coming out of the West, that many of the missionary organizations, even that are represented out on the plaza today, um, where we are having to figure out what to do with a decrease in new missionaries, a decrease in short-term missionaries, um, a decrease in funding even, because there are less people going into the field, less people having eyes to see what God can do through the work of some of these organizations. But I also want to encourage you with this. And Tim alluded to this in the first week. He talked about uh, Trader Joe's, right? He talked about the food that we can now get at Trader Joe's. And I think that's a small picture of a larger thing that's actually happening in the world that we live in today, right? Like, I'm born and raised in this area. Uh, I was born and raised in Pomona. I lived there for 17 years. I went to Gary High. Diamond Bar was the the place that meant, like, you've made it. And so I think that means I've made it now, of me being here with you guys today. Uh, But... When I grew up, if I wanted to experience uh, good Indian food, good Filipino food, good Mexican food, uh, good Vietnamese food, I had to get in my car, right? and my parents had to get me in their car. And we had to drive to have this cross-cultural experience. right? Today, we can all grab in a bus, jump in a bus together, and we can go to the packing house in Anaheim, and we can have, literally experience the nations under one roof. Right? Or you can go to Trader Joe's and literally see the nations represented under one roof. And I think about my daughter a lot when I when I realize this because my my kids consume content differently than us. I don't think my kids have ever watched a regularly scheduled program on TV. They just have no clue, other than like the Super Bowl, right? They have no clue what it means to like tune in at eight o'clock and watch shows until ten o'clock or nine o'clock when it's time to go to bed. My my daughter specifically only watches content on YouTube Kids. And the content that she consumes is from content creators all over the world. And her favorite creators come from Russia. They come from the Philippines. They come from Thailand. They come from parts of Western Europe. That, that my daughter is being formed by the nations without her even having to try, without having to, ha- without having to be intentional about that. Right? The intentionality that it once took from us to learn and be a part and participate in what the nations had to offer, that's just part of this next generation's experience. And that's incredibly encouraging for me for what it's going to look like when the baton is passed to them and how they're going to continue the work of the gospel and to reach the mission field for what God wants to do. So what do we do with all of this? How do we make sense of this? Well, there's this little thing that happens in Ezra chapter three that's incredibly encouraging to me that I want to spend some time this morning in and maybe illuminating the what could be for us, uh, the church today. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ezra chapter 3. And before we jump in, I want to give you just a little context so you know how we got, how the nation of Israel got to where they are at this point uh, in the text. And so prior to this, uh, Jerusalem is taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And when that happens, uh, Babylon destroys the first temple. They destroy Solomon's temple and take Israel into captivity. But now uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon have fallen to the Persian empire uh, led by King Cyrus. And it says at the beginning here in Ezra uh, chapter 1, it says that God roused the heart of Cyrus. I'm reading from the CSV, and so you might not have the same language in your Bible, but, but God roused the start of the heart of Cyrus, meaning he stirred him up. He, he did something within him to take note. And Cyrus says in chapter one, verse two, he says this, um, the Lord, the God of the heavens Has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you, may his God be with him, and may he go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with a free will offering for those, excuse me, for the house of God in Jerusalem. So it says God stirs his heart, and in recognition of just the power and authority that Cyrus has, uh, he, he, he wants to commission Israelites back to their, their motherland, to their homeland, to rebuild the temple to their God so we find ourselves in, in chapter 3, um, where the, the, they, they have migrated back. They're back in their homeland and actually begin the work of rebuilding the temple. So let's, let's jump back in and let's go to chapter 3. And we're going to read from verses 8 to 13. And it says, In the second month of the second year, after they arrived at God's house in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Saltil... Jeshua and son of Josadak, and the rest of their brothers, including the priests, the Levites, and all who had returned to Jerusalem from captivity, began to build. They appointed the Levites who were with, excuse me, they appointed the Levites who were 20 years old or more to supervise the work of the Lord's house. Jeshua with his sons and brothers, Cadamiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, and the, excuse me, and of Hanadad with their sons and brothers, the Levites joined together to supervise those working on the house of God. When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests dressed in their robes holding trumpets and the Levites descended from Asaph holding symbols, took their positions to praise the Lord as King David of Israel had instructed. They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love to Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because of the foundation of the Lord's house that had been built. But many of the older priests, Levites, and family heads who had seen the first temple wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple. But many others shouted joyfully. The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping because the people were shouting so loudly. What's happening in, this, in this, this text this morning? Well, to kind of summarize it, we see that, that um, Israel has gone back to Jerusalem. Uh, they, they've begun to build. It says that they've appointed uh, young men, right? 20 years and, old, and older to begin to supervise the project. It says uh, the foundation is laid, right? Uh, they, they've laid a foundation. After that's taken place, the senior leaders, uh, the priests, the Levites, they, they, they begin to lead the people in worship. And it says that the elders mourn the foundation of the new temple. And those who have never seen the old temple and only know the new one, they rejoice. The elders mourn the site of this new temple while the younger rejoice. Now, I read this, this uh, a few years ago and it just kind of stuck with me uh, because it, it feels a lot like where we find ourselves Today. Especially if you've been a follower of Christ for any time and and you've seen the way the church has evolved over the years, and maybe you, you've had this amazing experience with a church, this church at one point, and you've seen God do amazing things. Right? You've seen the majesty, you've seen the possibility, you've seen what God is able to do and build with His people. You've experienced the old temple. But when you see this new one being laid, you're stirred by grief and lament and disappointment. And maybe you weep the current state of the church, the way the elders wept, the state of this new foundation. And for the younger, for many of them, this is their first time leading out of captivity. This is the first time someone's tapped them on the shoulder and say, okay, you're in charge now. You lead us forward. For many of them, this is their first time seeing home. This is their first time stepping into the promised land. And this foundation that they've toiled and worked with the resources that were made available to build it. This is the only temple they have ever seen. This is their first glimpse of the new temple. And stirred by joy, stirred by potential, the possibility of newness, it says that the younger celebrate So so who's wrong in this scenario? Who has the wrong posture? And I think when you look at what's in front of you through the right lenses, if we're looking at that illustration, illustration, we're looking at what happens in this story through the lenses of the past. It's easy to be discouraged because you're only recognizing what God has done and if you keep those lenses on as you look at the future, it will never meet the expectations. It will never meet the, uh, the desires of what we once experienced. When we take into consideration the, the current state of the world and the church, um, we probably feel the same. Right? Maybe you've had this amazing experience at this church or another, and you've seen God do amazing things in your life, in the life of the church. You see God send out missionaries, raise up leaders, build buildings like this, purchase new property. You've seen exponential church growth. You've seen people having to sit outside, stack cars in to show up and to hear a particular preacher. You've seen what you have experienced. God do amazing things. And that's exactly what that is. God has done amazing things. But friends, we can't rest there. We can't stop there. We can't plant our flag in the ground and say, this is the pinnacle of what God is able to do within our church, within our own lives. No, this is just the beginning because God is new every day. God is doing new things all of the time. And like we see here, he is calling a new generation to himself. God is stirring the hearts of a new generation to lay a foundation, to build the next temple, to have a vision for the future. I mean, you guys are doing that very same thing here at this church, right? Like You guys are physically laying a foundation outside for what will be, for what God will do, not only in this generation, but for generations to come. That's because God is faithful, and God is new, and God is stirring the hearts of leaders at this church. So you're probably asking yourself, well, then how, how do I make sense of this today? How do I live in this today? How do I apply this to my life today? And in 1 Corinthians, we see Paul remind this young church. He says, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy. And that is what you are. See, the way that the application for this is that you you and I, yes, we, we are meeting and we're worshiping in this building, in this facility today, but this is not the physical representation of God's presence, right? This is not where people look and see and they know God is here, although that might happen. This isn't the only place where worship takes place, but rather, through the gift that is Jesus and the gift of his Holy Spirit, he now dwells in us and every one of us is a temple of God. His spirit dwells in you. And when your friends and your coworkers of Barisa, the trader Joe's bagger, when they interact with you, they are interacting with the temple of God. When they, when, when, they, when they see us gather in a place like this and they see us live sacrificially, they see us live communally, they see us lay down our own um, expectations, our own priorities, our own agendas and worship with one voice and cry out to God well, what we want to see him do in our lives and in this city. They look at a place like this and they know he is here, not because of the building, but because you are here. And the worship that takes place doesn't just happen here. Right? It, goes, it, it gets with you in your car as you're driving home, as you're interacting with your kids, your spouse, your family members, you love one. you take the worship that God plants in your heart in a space like this or plants in your heart through spending time in his text or plants in your heart through praying and you take that worship wherever it is that you might go, that your heart might be glad and joyful that we get to know Jesus. So what do we do with that? How do we live that way? We live expectantly looking at the past, right? The past isn't the metric of what God is capable of doing. The the past is a foundation, is a building block for what we believe God is capable to do in the future. So my hope for this church is that as you guys lay a literal foundation, as you guys pray and give and live generously in the work that God is doing in this new season of this church, That the young people here that they would know that this is a place for them to build this is a place for them to get their hands dirty this is a place to put their hands to the plow and be used to bring the gospel to a lost and dying generation that desperately needs to hear the good news of jesus and there might be some people in the room that that are saying you know this 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 doesn't work right like we, we need to go back to the way it was there's some that, that, are, that even go to say that, say that we, need even, we need to go back all the way to the first century church because the way they did it in Acts, that's the right way to do it. That's the right way to plant a church. That's the right way to build a community. But do you know that, that many theologians and church historians believe that uh, if Jesus would have come 10 years prior or 10 years after he did, we would not have seen the explosion in the church. That we that we all are really are a part of today. We're first fruits, or not first fruits. We're fruit of. Meaning that if Jesus would have come ten years before, uh, Israel would not have been under Roman rule. They would not have had the influence that they had with Rome. That Jesus was even able to go into uh, the that the synagogues were even allowed to exist for Jesus to go into them and to preach the gospel. The resources that were made available to them, the Roman's road, the ease of travel be able to go from one city to another by, by well-constructed and for the time paved roads uh, that, that, all of that made the gospel possible and if Jesus would have come after that, Rome had been, had been toppled. None of that would have existed anymore meaning, what I'm trying to say is that the very culture the very resources that existed at that very time Jesus spoke to to that particular people right, the illustrations, the way he taught fishers of men, all of this stuff means something to us today because we find it in scripture, but meant so much more to the first century uh, Mediterranean, Middle Eastern ear. And so Jesus, even in who he was when he existed, spoke the language, leveraged the resources of the culture and the time in which he existed to make his gospel known. The beautiful thing about that church is that God is faithful to do that and has been faithful to do that throughout time, and He will continue to do that today. So we might look at the stats, we might look at the numbers, we might look at the statistics and be incredibly discouraged. But we have to believe and know that through us, through His temple, that the gospel will be communicated, will be leveraged, will be advanced in ways that have never been done before. When we raise up new leaders, when we raise up young leaders, when we platform young voices and we help, they have then help us discern the culture and navigate the one that we're living in and, and figuring out how to exist in as followers of Jesus today. So be encouraged. Don't let the numbers fool you. Don't let the statistics bring you down. Even if we are weak, we know in our weakness, he is made strong, amen? And he will advance the gospel he will raise up the next generation he is building the foundation only if we have the lenses to see it and he will continue the work that he has begun into the future until we stand before him one day let's pray lord jesus we thank you we thank you that you came for us we thank you for the cross we thank you for your deep love for us and to see us reunited with the Father. We thank you for all the gifts and resources that you've given us that allow us to do that. We thank you for the commitment of the saints that came before us and their commitment to you and laying a foundation that we get to continue building on today, Lord. So I pray, Father, for my generation, the generations of past and the generations to come that you would give us your eyes to see clearly, your lenses to be able to navigate and discern and engage culture in a way that is meaningful, in a way that is transformative, in a way that brings souls to you. So would you empower us, Lord, empower this church, empower E-Free Church, Lord, to continue advancing your gospel, God. May we hear stories. May we we see physical structures. may, May we see physical growth that only you can bring. So we pray this expectantly, Lord, because we know that you are a good God who hears our prayers and gives us good gifts, Lord. So give us the gift of your gospel. And we ask these things in your name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you, Pastor Mitch. That was deep. Wasn't that deep? That was a thoughtful and thought provoking message. And I sat there just listening and just being reminded of the very fact that God has allowed us to communicate the gospel in a way that today's culture can understand it. And so I'm so thankful for Mitch, and for his heart, for the gospel, and for the church and our role in God's redemptive plan. So thank you again for blessing us with those words.